right, you may be seated. Yes, and uh, we're in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. We've been going through a series in the new year called Conquering Canaan. And we are in a chapter that I, I find another great chapter of the Bible. There are so many. Uh, I can't say that it's one of my favorites, although it is a favorite. I would say that because if I say it too often, then there's no favorites, right? And I think that's part of it. But I, I will say this is one of my, I guess, one of my favorites. And um, Joshua chapter 3 is where we're at. And to set this up a little bit, you remember we began this series looking at uh, Canaan from the perspective of a change in leadership. We had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under the direction of Moses. And Moses, my servant, is dead. That's what God said to the next in line. And that was Joshua, who was given the uh, baton, so to speak, as it was passed on to him. And he was to be the man who would be used to go and enter into the land of Canaan, the place that God had promised his people to, to dwell and to build their lives. And they had to get in to Canaan. There were these challenges that were ahead. The greatest of it, and we've been looking at it almost every message, was the fact of the timing of this. According to chapter 4 of Joshua, it was a time of the harvest when the Jordan overflowed its banks, most likely a spring harvest. And it was a time when the river was not just a little trickle of muddy water going down, but rather it was, a, some have estimated it was probably at least a mile wide in this plain of the, the floodplain of the Jordan if it was overflowing its banks. And so the children of Israel gather on that east side of Jordan, and there they are, and they are commanded to go over Jordan. And the, that's what chapter 3 is about. It's the historical record of them following God and God leading them into the promised land uh, over across the Jordan River. And there would be a great miracle that would take place in this uh, chapter, and we read of that today. Well, I'm going to pick it up this morning and look at Joshua chapter 1, uh, sh- sorry, Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read down through uh, at least the 13th verse. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here, and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, 
and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourself twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord... The Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Lord, we come before you acknowledging your word, acknowledging you have a message for us today. Thank you for that. We ask that you would teach us as only you can. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the instruction here of what God had said to the children of Israel through Joshua. Uh, remember, Joshua is a picture of uh, the captain of the, the hosts of, of Israel, but he's a picture of a greater leader, a leader really reflected in his name. His name, Joshua, Yehoshua, means salvation, and it is the exact same Hebrew name that Jesus would have had. All right, He would have been known as Yehoshua. And when it was translated into Greek and then further into English, we get the word Jesus. But people would have known him as Joshua. And we see this Joshua pictures for us a greater Savior who will someday not only allow us to dwell in the uh, Christian faith, or I'd say in the faith, uh, but he will also uh, lead us into a better place. And Canaan, though it does not picture perfectly heaven, and it shouldn't be necessarily pictured that way, you don't have to fight to get into heaven. You don't have to face um, a lot of uh, you know, problems of sin before or getting into heaven. You, would, you will have to, in essence, that way to heaven has already been made clear and paid for fully by the Lord Jesus Christ, who literally battled sin for us and took our sin at the cross and now he enters he's entered into that place and now we can go in because he's our savior so joshua pictures in many ways that that part of the ministry of jesus and he pictures really the the theme of the book of joshua would be how believers can enter into a place of rest and a place of service and that's what canaan really pictures for us and that is a now thing, not just in the future in heaven. Well, the, uh, this chapter opens up and it says that they were gathering in a place called Acacia Grove. And then they went from there and they went to the banks of the Jordan River in that area. And they were looking out over the Jordan. And we know the very place that, they, that God led them to was a very important place because this was the same place where God would exalt Joshua as their leader. He was going to confirm by a great miracle that he indeed was, he was with Joshua just like he had been with Moses. And he was going to do it by actually opening up the Jordan River. And you remember 40 years prior to this, God had done a very similar miracle in that he had opened up the Red Sea. And he did so with, under the leadership of Moses. And again, the picture really is that God was doing the miracle, but God had his man who was the one they were to follow. And uh, we see that here as well. And it was important because at this very same spot, centuries later, almost uh, somewhere like almost 1,500 years later, uh, 13, I don't know, 1,350 years later, somewhere in that range, you would have 
another leader of Israel stand in that very same spot. In the book of John, in the New Testament, in chapter 1, we read of the baptizing of John, or his ministry of baptizing people at the Jordan River. And people were being baptized for the repentance, or in, this, in the essence of, of repenting of their sin and, and showing forth that. Um, and it was there that Jesus presents himself publicly for the very first time as Messiah. And we read of it in John chapter 1, verse 26. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the word Bethabara means, Beth, anytime you see that, means house. So Bethel was the house of God. Uh, Bethabara means house of the crossing. It was the very same spot where centuries before Joshua stood and the people of Israel stood before they crossed over. And that place or the house of the crossing was the very spot where John would be baptizing. And that's where Jesus presents himself. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, when you come across details in the Bible, it's important that those details are explored. Because many of them fill in some, I think, some great truths to that. Uh, honestly, I had read several times through the book of Joshua when I was a young Christian, and I never had connected the Gospel of John and the baptism of Christ as the place, the same place where um, God would do a mighty miracle centuries before and bringing the people into the land. And, and sometimes it's just in learning a word name or something like that. And I, I hope you see that. And I would say this, that you ought to be doing that on your own as well. As you read the word of God and you come across a name or you come across a look things up. In, in today's world of the internet, it's not too hard to, to look a name up or something like that. Now, make sure you filter the information because sometimes it isn't always right. But I've learned I can go to certain reliable sources and I can get those rather easily. Don't even have to thumb through a book to do it or own a book to do it. Um, we have that. Well, anyways, I want to go on because... We have here a picture in the book of Joshua where God speaks to Joshua who speaks to the people. And again, when God speaks, that's his word, that's his message. And I want to pick up on that today. If you want an outline, and the theme of this chapter is getting past Jordan. See, God didn't want his people to remain there in that wilderness experience where they had dwelt for 40 years and that whole first generation had died off. Well, he said, talked about that, only two in that generation would ever enter into Canaan um, in, during this time. And that would be uh, Joshua and a man named Caleb. We'll come to him later on. And they were two of the 12 spies, scouts who had gone years before to search out the land. Right after they came across the Red Sea and came into the land. And God said, go scout it out. And they came back and they were only two out of the 12 that brought a good report. The rest said, impossible. Can't do it can't do it there's like giants in the land and there's you know we're like grasshoppers in their sight and they're more numerous and they had all the reasons why they shouldn't enter in to the land of Canaan the place that God had promised them and so God said all right fine you don't believe me you'll wander around here in this wilderness until you all die 
yet he was faithful to the two that believed, and they would, in older years, enter into that land uh, in, in that time. Well, we're going to look at this message from God, because that's really where, where this begins. It begins with a message. It begins with some very simple things, and I want to look at it. First of all, it was a challenging message, and you see a challenge that is here, all right? And that challenging message, um, and I probably put it this way, the challenge, and there's a couple things here I want to look at, and just in preliminary stuff. The first one's found right in verse 1. And these are very simple, practical things. I think if you want to enter into the place that God has for you and you want to enter into that step of obedience and a life of as, as a disciple, a follower of Christ, not just at a distance, but at close up and see great things and be involved in those things, well, you have to do some things. They're very simple. The first one is right here in verse 1. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And I wrote down... Get up. Pretty simple. Get up. Most people spend, you know, a good portion of their life sleeping. And we do that because we need to sleep. All right? We have to. But there's a time to get up. And then sometimes just by getting up and organizing your day, and I'm not saying what time you need to get up, right? He rose up early in the morning. That seems to be a pattern with God's people. And throughout, like, the... You read of uh, other accounts of people who rose early to do things. And uh, Abraham did that. Remember when Isaac was uh, to be sacrificed up there on Mount Moriah. And God told him he was going to, he, he wanted him to sacrifice his only son. And didn't tell him the next step. And it says they rose early in the morning. And went out and did, went about the Lord's business. Now God provided a lamb in the stead of Isaac picture of the gospel here we'll see a picture of the gospel but if you want to see god at work you got to get up out of bed i have to tell you that it's that simple sometimes just out of sheer sluggishness and laziness we do not get involved in the life that god wants us to have and i will say this sometimes it requires even times where you're not going to get the rest you need there are a number of times in my uh, years that I've gotten calls in the middle of the night or I've had things that go on and I, I don't count it a great burden although sometimes I groan but I will say this that it is one of those things as a privilege as a Christian sometimes we get those things and we we get bad news in the middle of the night or something like that or someone's been taken ill and they've gone to a hospital or those kind of things and you count it part of God's ministry to be involved in that but you know if you never get up in the morning, you'll never see it. Or if you never get up, period. Some of you go into bed in the morning because you work shift work, right? Or you work an odd schedule, those kind of things. But in other words, rise up out of your slumber. Get up. The second one is show up. Just, just show up. Sometimes we don't see God at work because we do not show up. And I honestly think of that because um, we have... And I, and I say this, that I am thankful for every single one of you that are here today or that will listen in on this message later on in the day. Sometimes people's schedules don't work it out so they can be here on a Sunday and Sunday morning or distance or those kind of things. So I never go after and hound people about their church attendance and all that. But can I just tell you a simple principle? If you don't come to church and you don't sit in on Bible studies and those kind of things, you, you have a whole area of your Christian life that can't be developed. Because I have found this, that... 
over the years, like people will come to me and say, hey, I'd love to be, uh, I need some counseling, for example, or I need this or I need that. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm game for that. And we do that. But then if that person is unwilling to sit in the word of God, under the word of God, in the teaching of the word of God regularly, they're missing out on a whole area of how God could counsel them. And God could teach them. And can I tell you something? He does a far better job than I do. A lot better. Because I have found, and I'm sure you have too, that when you open up this book, it has a marvelous effect that where sometimes God just begins to teach somebody something that I'm not aware of. But the Holy Spirit is. And he understands those things far better than me and you. And he knows what you need. Show up. Show up. We have several occasions all, you know, every week where the word of God is taught here at church or in various homes or Bible studies, those kind of areas. And there's no excuse. And if you don't like it here, there's lots of good stuff out there all right, to listen to solid preaching and those kind of things. But I'm not saying it should be all about what we like and we don't like. I'm just saying there's no excuse. Show up. And sometimes it's not just showing up about listening to the word of God and sitting under the word of God. Sometimes it's showing up to do something. Right? Listen, some of my most exciting times in the Christian walk that I have now walked for about 34 years, going on 35 years, is times with people who are believers. And iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. And how many times I've had a dear brother in the Lord or, or a sister in the Lord even say, oh, I had this, this teaching today or this thing that happened. Or, hey, do you think we could do it this way? And iron sharpens iron. That's the principle. And if you eliminate the idea of fellowship with one another, and I'm saying serving together with one another, there are times, uh, I mean, we have gathered as a church to do really hard work. I mean, labor, manual labor, that kind of stuff. And it's exciting that when people get together and the smiles on people's faces, when they're involved and they're doing stuff or going out on a short-term missions trip or a long-term missions calling, right? Those kind of things. Show up. God likes those kind of people. And then I thought, well, I'm going to use a military term and and this is also found in verse 3 here. I'm going to move on to, to verse 3, Joshua 3, 3. And it says, And they, that's the officers, verse 2 says it was the officers, went through the, host of the camp of the people, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. And there's a call and I use the military term fall in, all right? How many, how many vets are here or people familiar with the military? Yeah, when I use the word fall in, what does that mean? Get together. And you just get together like one big cluster of people? No, you fall in means get in rank, okay? Get in, in order, right? So if it was a company of, of uh, troops, whatever, Marines, anybody out there, and somebody said fall in, it means everybody gathers up and they have an orderly way that they fall in. And then you can actually get an accountability of everybody in your unit really quickly. I mean, really quickly if it's done right. And then the commander, whoever's in charge of that group, okay, can issue orders rather quickly. And it goes through the ranks quickly. And sometimes God says, fall in. It means get with it. Get with the program. And 
we just do that, all right? And by the way, it should be something that we're, we're familiar with that. Uh, sometimes, though, I'll, I'll tell you, and I'm, I can be this way, and I think all of us have a little bit of rebel in us, don't we? And we say, God wants us to fall in and get involved and get on with the program, and, and not me. I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Well, that kind of attitude, first of all, is going to just stifle whatever else is going on. If you have one individual who's out of step when, like, troops are marching or whatever, you see it like that. Because you'd say, man, there's something not right, you know? This person's out of step. But when 100 people are all in step, it's a marvelous thing. It really is. The Bible talks about unity among believers, that doesn't mean we all march around like little toy soldiers and we all have the same look as the, the other guy. You know, that's not the, the idea. But spiritually speaking, we ought to be following the Lord and do so in unity and seek that at, at many, you know, different costs to us. Sometimes at our own, well, putting our own things aside, right? Well, he says, he commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, and they had to go... And uh, this would be the fourth point, and it would be this. They need to look up. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, I won't go into great details about that other than if you read through your Old Testament books of Moses, you have the instruction of the uh, uh, making of the tabernacle or a place where God met with the people. And he was never contained in any kind of structure or building or tent or anything like that. But you go through, like, for instance, the book of Leviticus, and you read of the articles of uh, furniture, or so to speak, that were there in the tabernacle. And it was like this tent-like structure that was never permanent. It was something that could be uh, taken down and put up and moved. And it was done in accordance with how God wanted it to be done. For instance these articles had to be moved by the priests. They were the Levitical priests. They were from, you know, um, back there, the tribe of Levi. And they were the ones who were in charge in an orderly fashion of getting this stuff moved and how they were even to carry. And the central part of that was something called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this interesting, and if you want to see pictures of it there's no such pictures out there obviously there is no art today that we know of uh it it went disappearing and it's not in a government warehouse probably like in indiana jones Uh, that's how that ended uh but the ark of the covenant was a, a, a this box of wood best way i can describe it overlaid with pure gold i think the ark in itself speaks of christ and it's a type of christ Jesus, who was human, that's the wood part, you know, part that deteriorates, those kind of things. Jesus was also deity, that's the pure gold part. And inside that box, there was a lid on it, we'll come to that. There was Aaron's rod that bunted, right? And the testimony of the law, which was the Ten Commandments, the tablets. And there was a jar. And what was in the jar? Manna. Manna was in the jar. Manna was that stuff that God provided daily for his people for 40 years um, in the wilderness because he sustained them. And that was put in there. The top was put on. And the top of it was called the mercy seat or the part of it that was the mercy seat was actually there was a raised edge 
And then inside of or on top of that was a place where there were two angels and these figures of uh, cherubim that whose wings overshadowed the mercy seat. And they were of one piece of beaten gold and they their faces looked toward the mercy seat. And I don't know what they looked like exactly, but they're described as angelic beings with wings. Okay, and if you Google, you know, Ark of the Covenant, you'll see various artistic renditions of that, uh, which are probably fairly accurate. We don't really know for sure. But you say that's kind of strange. Well, what, why would they have this? And and then it had these uh, rings on the sides, and they would put wooden staves or sticks through that. And they would only carry the Ark of the Covenant, the priests had to carry it, and they would only carry it, not touching the Ark, but rather with these wooden staves, and they would, they would carry it off. And there were two things about the Ark. First of all, it was the place that God promised he would meet with his people. And he would do so through the priest, and he would do so with the, what we call in the Old Testament, it says the Shekinah glory which represented itself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as far as we know, through the descriptions of things in the books of Moses, is that when God's glory filled the tabernacle, there was this cloud associated with his glory. And when the cloud began to move, then they knew it was time to move. And it was very easy to follow God in that way because We see the cloud is moving. We need to get on and go and do that. They did that. Now also on the top of that, that mercy seat, it was the place where every year there would be an offering of a blood sacrifice of a lamb. The lamb's blood would be taken and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And it would be sprinkled first and foremost for the priest who was offering the sacrifice because he was a sinner. And then he would do so secondly on behalf of the people. And he would do that on the Day of Atonement. And the work of doing that, the function of that, was an emblematic of faith. It really is, because they were trusting God in the process. That's what they were doing. God said, do this. They did it. They trusted God. And he would atone for their sin. That's why I say it's a picture of Christ. Because we come to the New Testament and Jesus is hanging on a cross, the Lamb of God, whose, whose blood will take away the sin of the world. And see, the Ark of the Covenant fell short in that every year they had to do that again and again. But Jesus only had to do it once. And by the way, he didn't need a priest to do it either. He himself is our high priest. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Uh, He has a better priesthood. He has a better sacrifice. And he's better than the Ark even. And the Ark was important because it was associated very closely with the glory of God. And it was associated with... Uh, all these, and God was going to use the ark and his glory to lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. He says, look up, verse 3. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. They were to look at that. They weren't to look at the Jordan. They weren't to look at the circumstances they were in. They weren't to look back where they had been. They were to look to the ark. And thus look to the Lord. Very important that we do that. Book of John chapter 5 verse 19 says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. We're told in the New Testament, look to Jesus. And if you look to Jesus, you will see the Father, because they are of one essence, and we are to look to Jesus. The Bible later says in the book of Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Just as they were to look to the Ark of the Covenant, they were actually looking toward looking to God, we are also called to look to Jesus. So I'm thankful for that. Well, the next thing, and I call this look out. <laughs> look out. Doesn't mean look out by warning in that way, but it says here in verse 4 of Joshua 3, And there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And what I, it says here is that they were as a people, and we don't know exactly how many people were there. Some have put it as high as a couple million that would have been gathered in the host of Israel, and they would have uh, been looking out at the Jordan River. And God specifically tells them, I don't want you re- being right up there on the shore. I want you to be backed off so that you can see the big picture. And sometimes, my friends, we become uh, so, I guess, myopic, I guess would be the term, so nearsighted that we don't see the big, big picture of what God is doing. And I like the Bible in that you can read through the Bible and, of course, you get the big picture. Um, you, we have the, the end of the Bible. We have the book of Revelation. We can look at the beginning, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, and we get the big picture. But yet, even knowing those things, we still can become nearsighted when it comes to the things of God. Sometimes God just wants us to step apart and say, wow, look at God. He's bigger and he's, he's better than I ever imagined. And that's not, what God delights in that kind of thing. That's ascribing worth to him. And the old English word of worship is worship. We ascribe worth to someone. And that's what we do with the Lord Rightfully so. And, and I'll illustrate that just by, by viewing. Now, you see this picture behind me. Now, take a guess what that is. It's a branch. All right, good. A branch. By the way, this is a Chris Michaud photo, okay? And, and, and if I make any money on this, I'm going to send it to him, just so you know. But, but it is a Chris Michaud. I got permission from him. Um, all right, so take a guess. Sky, okay, sky. It's a river. Hey, some of you are a little closer. What part? Now, how do you think it's the St. John River? Well, it might, might not be St. John. Could be the Allagash, yeah. Could be anywhere. But, but you're, you're on to the right spot. There's the big picture, right? You were right, those that said St. John River, right? And, and you're looking, but that branch right in the middle at the bottom there that's the branch we were looking at and all that and you know if you just got a quick glimpse of that you say well maybe that's the sky because it looks like a tree maybe it's not maybe it's a river and you know chris he takes a lot of pictures of the saint john river and he does a lot of sunsets that might be a sun no it's a sunrise or sunset yeah it's a set because i'm looking yeah upstream uh but anyways you see the bigger picture and 
uh, appreciate his photos that a lot of people do because they're big picture photos and they're stuff a lot of us are familiar with, but maybe we just don't take time to look at them. How many times have you driven by that spot in the St. John River or floated down that part of the river and you don't really see its beauty? And if you're looking too closely at something, you don't even get where you're at. God said to the people of Israel, step back. He told them to get out of the way about a distance of about 3,000 feet. Okay, Cubit is the measure from your elbow up to your, your beginning of your hand or whatever and uh, maybe 18 inches or so. And that's how they determined you know they were to step back and you've seen times where you're in a crowd and something happens and you have no idea what just happened the crowd is somewhere is making noise and you say something's happened but i can't see it because i'm too close to everybody he says step away get back and i would just say this look out look out at what god is doing my friends it is so easy to look at the problems of life there's lots of them we can look at all the chaos that's going on around us and the geopolitical climate of our world. We can look at all that. We can look at individual instances of this and of that, and we can be so discouraged. And sometimes we just need to step back and say, God, what are you doing? And he's still high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. That's what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He was high and lifted up. In a year where a king, a, a great king who had started off well, had died a leprous death, King Uzziah. And everybody's discouraged. Everybody's down. Everybody's just all downhearted because of what had taken place in their world. And Isaiah goes to the place where he knew he'd see the glory of God. And he says, he's still high and lifted up. Isn't that good? We need that. Look out. Get the big picture. Well, secondly, it involved the command. A command. Joshua says, in verse 5, it says, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There's a principle here. First of all, back in verse 1, they were to go and they were to camp there on the Jordan, banks of the Jordan, back from it, um, for about three days. It says three days. And I think three days, by the way, in Scripture is often a picture of completion. It's a picture also, I've mentioned this, a place where you have come to the end of something like death, example. Jesus was buried, and then the third day he rose again. Um, that's significant. The Jordan pictures for us a place of death. Nobody would have been able, or not a nation anyways, cross over that Jordan without being wiped out. For three days, they sat there, standing there, wherever, looking out at the Jordan River, looking towards the Ark of the Covenant as well. And they would have understood, they came to themselves and said, this is humanly impossible. Sometimes we have to come to ourselves and realize it's humanly impossible. And only when we realize it's humanly impossible, we say, God, is it possible with you? And he says, yes. And that's what he was going to do. But there was a second principle here that Joshua said, sanctify yourselves. That means set yourselves apart. Get ready. You know, in the morning if you come to church, I assume most of you took a little time to get ready to come out of the house today, right? Unless you slept in your clothes that you're in now or whatever. But most of us, we do that. I take a long time combing my hair and doing that. And, <laughs> but I will say this, that we would never... Go out of the house without, at least in the winter, putting a coat on, right? I hope. Those kind of things. 
We do all kinds of things every day to prepare ourselves for the next step of the journey. Have you sanctified yourself before the Lord today? Have you said, God, here I am today. Will you, will you work in my life? Sanctification means to set yourself apart for his service in, in his use and to be one of his. And it's this idea that they were going to remind each other and themselves, I'm not my own. I am someone else's. I am God's. And I'm going to set myself apart for him and for his use and his service. And by the way, he does a far better job of it, doesn't he? We aren't always good about that, though. And it involved this command to do that. And by the way, if you don't do that, well, the principle of reaping and sowing, right? If you want to remain in your sin, it will continue and you eventually reap your sin. Um, Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. It's easy to, and by the way, that's a positive aspect of reaping and sowing. If you, if you go and you do good and you create these godly habits in your life where regularly you're setting yourselves apart for him and you're doing that, it becomes a pattern of life that's just routine and regular, just like putting on clothes in the morning. Saying, God, I'm, I'm going to show up today and uh, get up and, and show up and see what you're doing. And I'm going to have a heart that's ready to serve and do that. Over and over again, we're commanded in the New Testament to do that. One of the clearest passages is Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Very probably familiar verse simple verse but are you practicing it am i practicing it say lord here i am please take it and use it because he can do it in your weaknesses in your strengths all those things i'm thankful for that and by the way part of our sanctification is just coming before him daily and saying lord i i am going to if I, i'm going to keep short accounts with you i've often told the story here the illustration of dwight moody the great evangelist Dwight Moody, as he was crossing a busy Chicago street one day with, with a friend, um, that back in the days when horses were drawing, you know, uh, wagons and all that stuff, he was crossing uh, a busy Chicago street, and his friend uh, noticed that he just stopped, and Moody got down on his knees in the middle of the street, and he, I mean, people had to go around him, and probably horses and everything else, and that's a very dangerous thing to do, to stop in the middle of the street and get down on your knees. Well, Moody got up off his knees and he came over to his friend and his friend said, what were you doing? And he said simply, while I was crossing the street, it came to mind of a dark thing that was in my heart and I needed to confess it to God. And he didn't bid to leave. He could leave the center of the street until that was dealt with. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Every unrighteous thing is something God is willing to forgive and cleanse. And that cleansing part is our part of going before him and saying, Lord, I'm dirty, I need washing. His part is the forgiving part. It's a good thing, because we're not always forgiving, but he is, completely. And if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. 
And the daily walk is a sanctification process, and that is the part we need. And then lastly, there's this commitment. There's a commitment. It involved a commitment of the people, right? Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Where is this coming from? The word of God. And I I can tell you this, that as we commit ourselves to hearing the word of God and studying it and all that, you can't get a better message. You can read a lot of books and commentaries on what somebody thinks the word of God says, but the best one is just to read the word of God, to go into it and to do it. Joshua said, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you. My friends, may I say that too? By this, the word of God, you will know that the living God is among you. And if this book is up on the shelf and collecting dust, you'll forget the living God. He's still among you. But you'll, uh, you'll miss out. Don't do that. And that he with, will without fail drive out before you. And then he, he lists all these, these tribes of people that are there. Those are the giants in the land according to the generation prior. God says you'll be victorious. And there's lots of things we can be victorious, right? And then he says, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing before you into Jordan. Next week we're going to talk about that Ark of the Covenant of all the world, all the earth. Do you realize that though this was specific to the people of Israel, God was doing something bigger that was on a global scale? And today he's still doing something on a global scale. And God has always wanted all people everywhere to worship him. Next week we'll talk about that. Whole week to think about that. I hope that I can get to it next week and just look at it and say, God, you're so good. But I just end with this. All the things you worry about, all the things you're concerned about today, all the, the heartaches that you're bearing, all those things, God is big enough to take every single one of them and make you victorious. I don't know what the Jordan is in front of you right now in that life, that experience, but there are times that it, it's like impassable. I can't do it, but God can. And don't ever forget that. Lord, we're grateful for your word this morning. Grateful that you are the one who takes our worries, you take our trials, you take our sin, you take the way that the things that have, have hurt us and harmed us, you take them all. And there at the cross, you bore them. Lord, we need only look to you by faith and trust you. And Lord, we can enter in to your very presence and enter in to the promises you have for us. Enter in to the glory that awaits. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.